Welcome back to another season of Campfire Conversations, coming to you live from my new home at Tulela, a luxury exclusive use camp in the magnificent Klaseri. You can find out more about what we are up to here at Tulela by signing up for our newsletter on www.tulela.co.za or following us on Instagram at Tulela underscore ZA. We are this morning next to the Tulela Sleepout platform because we were supposed to do this podcast last night and the weather got in our way. We slept out in the middle of the bush with my gang of five intrepid explorers. This morning the wind is too strong up on the top so we're down here literally in the middle of the bush and we also got Roxy with us. Uh, we don't know what kind of dog she is. <laughs> we have a vet here who owns her, doesn't know what kind of dog she is. Doesn't instill much confidence in me. Brought her food at least. <laughs> yes, we did, did. And without Roxy, we would have been attacked and marauded by hyenas last night. Actually, incredible how a dog is in the bush. This morning's guests Michael Grover, third time repeat. Yeah. Thanks for coming, buddy. Thank you. Thank You're the you. inspiration behind it. Former Skakuza Cricket Club captain, networker, <laughs> ecologist, grazing expert, friend, and human wildlife conflict expert. Grant Beverly. Thanks for having me again. Round number two. I was surprised for the re-invite. After <laughs> the last retro back conversation with Brian Masters. <laughs> yes, well the feedback was people were upset because I stopped it on minute 26. Oh really? So we brought you back. He's branded this morning and we want more from you. Lofeld Regional Coordinator for the Endangered Wildlife Trust's Carnivore Conservation Program. Animal lover turned carnivore researcher, extreme sports enthusiast, outgoing wild guy, trying to keep up with the times while living in the bush. Head boy, captain of the first team rugby. It's a small school. Yeah. <laughs> and mayor oh of Hootspray. And the mayor of Hootspray, the center of the universe. No, the last time a girl asked me, like, at a night out, are you really the mayor of Hootspray? I was like, oh, so it's getting a bit much. Let's just... Live that in the bud. I'm not the mayor of Hoodspray. If you want to purchase any uh, mayor of Hoodspray t-shirts, you can go to www.grantbeverly. <laughs> Contact my publicist. Some people are still revved up from last night, as you can hear. Let's see how this goes. Uh, we have my main man, Guy Rodseth. Guide, straight out of Maritzburg College. Been coming to the Klaseri for the you last 17 boy. years. Looking to kick off a career in guiding in a world where there are no tourists. He is not single. He is good looking. Some people say he's got the look of James Souter. He's six foot four. Your heart is here in the Klaseri Private Nature Reserve. As a father of a daughter, how big is your dad's farm? <laughs> And my most special two guests, we have Dr. Ben Muller, wildlife vet extraordinaire. Ben has a mission to practice honest and constructive medicine and management around both the commercial and conservation wildlife sectors. Some say it was impe his impeccable veterinary skills which landed him his biggest catch, his girlfriend Leah Brown. <laughs> Problem is she's Australian. <laughs> That was going really well up until now. Eh? Jeez, I was going to use that for my website. It actually sounds pretty good. It's on your LinkedIn profile. Do you still love her after the whole sandpaper gate thing? <laughs> it's, uh, it hasn't come up into discussion yet. Yeah. Not bedroom talk, eh? Ben owns a motorbike and a boat. Neither actually operate, 
and spends his time taking photos of his work partner, the conservation vet, to make him look good on Instagram. We've got a few good questions which have come in for Ben. Ben, back to you a little later. We've got Tristan Dix, our most famous uh, guest ever. Born and raised in the big city of Johannesburg, during his vacation time at university, Tristan would venture to Kenya where he spent his time raising orphan baby elephants. He's a wild earth celebrity and these days leads privately guided photographic safaris for his business wandering through. We've had his fiance Ali on this show before and we are very privileged to have Tristan. We're going to ask him the same questions like, is she really your fiance? No. It's my girlfriend, but long term. Last time we were a bit confused whether you were even her girlfriend. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Ten years experience in the Sabi sand. Tristan brings with him a wealth of local knowledge as well as a strong familiarity with our favorite animal characters. Gentlemen, it's awesome to have you here. Thank you very much. Here we go. I'm going to go straight while I've got uh, Grant Beverly. (laughs) Can you do any other animal sound apart from a wild dog? Oh, I mean, this generally only comes out late in the evening, but I, I can give it a go. We're all still going from last night. So just so that everybody knows, we've got a bit wet in the night. We've been waiting for the wind to calm down, and here we are. The sun's rising, and Beverly and I are still on 9 out of 10. I'm going to have to go with the chimpanzee. Wow. Mm. You might want to turn the volume of the mic down a little bit for this one, eh? Yes, I may. Okay, okay. Uh, the volume control. chimpanzee? Yeah. I mean, one time I went to Uganda and I just remember seeing a chimp. Okay. okay. Did you actually see a chimp? No. No, I was about to say. No. <laughs> I wanted to. Okay. <coughs> wow, good. That's excellent, dude. I think, I think it might be better than the wild dog. Yes, so do I, considering you spent your life listening to wild Very good. Tell us about why you didn't see a chimp in Uganda. I did. Jeez, we had the most insane experience. What is the first time I saw the back of a chimp. Are there chimps there? Yeah. Yeah. Murchison Falls, no, no, area no. up in the north. It's, no, there, it's near... There's no chimps there, though. Chibali. Chibali Reserve. We stayed uh, at that... Um, <coughs> we didn't get there in time. Yes. We stayed at that like, hotel in... In the town, and we didn't. Yeah, we didn't get there in time. Oh, why didn't we, we get under, there in time? We, we underestimated how long it took to drive in Uganda. <laughs> yeah, not as small as it looks on the map. No, it's it's no, small, but the roads. Like, when you've got trucks coming straight Bad at traffic, you. I believe. When you land know. back in South Africa and you drive on the N1 North, and you're like, wow, it's like, I don't think we should ever complain about our highways. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, and we obviously did try and... involved. Now they just oh, they chimps there though. Hump. Seriously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Really? Yeah, Chipotle okay. Forest is actually fantastic for them. Really. First time I went, we just saw the back of a chimp. But last year, one year ago, right now, actually, almost well to the day, two. I was in Uganda. We had amazing chimps there, man. Kibali. Okay. Do that noise again? I don't know that. Really? No, you don't have to. That was amazing. That really does yeah, sound like a chimpanzee. Okay, from uh, at Charlotte Craig, uh, do you ever take any interns? Um, so we do. It's a process to go through because of the logistics around accommodation and the legalities of having people in the field, but it is possible. Um, <clears throat> Classic Private Nature Reserve, here we are. Guy, um, I mean, you've been coming here for 17 years. Your heart is here, I guess. What do you love about this place? No, I guess I've got to say that it's pretty, you know, obviously there's, a, there's 
these commercial lodges and private, um, but it's pretty untouched, you know. Things here are pretty wild, um, which makes it really cool to come and, you know, spend some time finding your own game, finding your own animals, going out. So there's that aspect to it. But yeah, I think, to be honest, that's probably the biggest thing for me is how wild it is and kind of untouched. And it's like your own little, your own little piece of heaven, you know. You come here, it's your, your space, you can do what you like, and that's pretty much what I love the most about it. Love it, man. Thank you very and much. And there's chimpanzees, eh? <laughs> yeah, now they are. <laughs> They're busy moving south. If I ask you a sighting that comes to your mind immediately from the Klaseri, thus, you know. So, we actually, I was here for lockdown. I was pretty privileged to be here for about four months in lockdown last year. And it's wow. with dogs. Oh, really? So, it was, it was about half past five in the morning, and I'd, I'd heard some monkeys going wild above my roof. And I kind of walked out in my... My lodge just looks over the Klesay River, which is pretty special. And the river was a lot lower then. And um, I woke up, walked out onto my veranda, and in the corner, I saw like seven fluffy white tails going wild. And I realized that obviously there were dogs and they were flattening in a pile of carcass. And um, I kind of had, I had friends in camp, woke them up. And now it is about quarter to six in the morning. Um, and with that, two hyenas walked down. And the dogs kind of chased the hyenas, and the hyenas chased the dogs, and it was a bit of a scuffle. The dogs then made their way up the, the bank. Um, they came back, chased hyenas off again, and with that there was baboons alarm calling in the background. I thought that's a bit funny, to, you know, baboons going wild at dogs and hyenas. And the dogs kind of finished off what they could, walked up the bank. With that, hyena came, picked up the carcass, um, and turned around and looked straight down the river, and dropped the carcass, ran up the bank, and with that, a few more lioness came, picked up the picked up the rest of the impala and walked up the bank. This is all at like six in the morning in our pajamas watching this. Yeah, it was a pretty special way to start the day. It's know? awesome. Very, it's very cool. cool. That really is cool. <laughs> that is cool. Yeah, when you, whenever there's predator interactions, like I'm spending a long time in the bush, that's where it's yeah. at. So mm. tell us, that's cool, man. Yeah. That, that's what Very a sight. Cool that's what we live for. Tell, uh, God, <coughs> what do you know about the Klaseri wild dogs, the packs, the numbers, the success? anything so probably the most interesting is that for, the, for a long time <clears throat> my research focused in kruger national park well actually when it started out in 2010 it was looking at the dispersal from kruger outside but then focused on what was happening inside and i wouldn't say they're famous but there was definitely a facebook following <clears throat> of the open mega pack of wild dogs they got up to over 40 individual adults at one stage Jeez. and there was I mean, 40 wild dogs in an area is going to get a little bit of attention through social media and whatever. And, and they actually then formed from, from dispersal and sort of split-offs from that pack, what is currently the resident pack in Klaseri, which has also gotten to over 30 dogs. I believe so. Yeah, so when was it? 2016, they had, when I started looking more into the sort of the demographics of wild dogs in the, in the APNR, there were 16 pups born to that pack on close to Africa on foot, just just on the other side, on the northern side of mm. the road. They had 16 pups, and all 16 of those pups survived. So that pack forms the core of of Klaseri. And there's also a video that went fairly viral from I think Colin Rolls took it. I know he sent it to me, the warden of of Klaseri, of them swimming across a fairly flooded Klaseri river. And there's just dog after dog after dog swimming oh, across. And there were that. 33 dogs at the time when they were <laughs> swimming, swimming across that river. And th so that's the core pack. 
<clears throat> but then there's packs from Timbavati and then further east into Kruger that, that come through, but they, because wild dogs are so wide ranging, they're not resident in, in the Klaseri. So I would say that it's only one resident pack and it's a large pack as well. So a very large pack. 30, 30 odd dogs is occupying quite a large home range to avoid lions and, and just their prey requirements. But yeah, that's that's pretty much the only resident pack in, in Kasseri. Do you think they're so successful because they're less lions or less lions, hey? I mean I don't know if, how much time Hawley spent in the bush during lockdown, but there's there's considerably less lions in Kasseri than in Timbavati and Balule, for example. Mm. So it allows for the other predators to, to increase. Yeah, and I mean essentially wild dogs are, are subordinate to, to other apex predators, particularly lion and even ahina, you know, so okay. if there's a high density of ahina in an area, wild dogs are going to uh, avoid it. Interesting. And that's obviously a determinant for pack size as well. So the, uh, it is just because of pup survival. So, and it's, it's actually probably one of the most common questions asked is what, what inhibits wild dogs? Pack sizes. Pack size. And it's really, it, it boils down to lions. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, a, <clears throat> it's the largest threat, including anthropogenic. So even mm. snaring, disease, human wildlife conflict, lions is still the largest cause of, of mortality. It's acceptable because it's natural, you know, that's what's supposed to happen. But pup survival rate is less than 60% of the pups survive the first year, and it's really attributed to conflict with lions. Jeez, so, the persecution that you're seeing like when, when the dogs are going outside of the protected area and stuff, what is the, the sort of ratio of, is, is it close to what would be natural if, those, if there were lions in that area? Or is it a little bit higher? No, so it's higher if you isolate that pack. Okay. So per pack it's higher because that's a, a pack that's on the fringes of the, the sort of core protected area. And so if a pack of eight dogs goes out and they're persecuted, in all likelihood, 80 to 100% of those dogs are going to get killed okay. of that pack. Okay. Whereas with lions, it'll be a couple of pups per time that are, are wiped out or killed by lions, but the pack is still able to persist. Whereas a, a private branch is going to shoot the as many pack. adults as they can. <clears throat> and you know, in terms of the structure of a wild dog pack, if the alpha female is killed, then the pack splinters and mm. splits up after that. And that's that's been one of the biggest issues, particularly during denning season, you know. So when they den on a property, it's the alpha female that stays at the den for three months. She's a sitting target. Yeah, and then the likelihood of her being killed is quite high. Um, from my main man, Byron Lotter, Inyati, the captain of the jocks, uh, he sent in a question, he says, has a pack m that you moved to the north done well? Have any other packs naturally moved up north? Now, I'm assuming that's up north in the Kruger. Yeah, Shingwetsi, we introduced a pack into Shingwetsi in 2017. Um, they did well, but we were surprised by their movement. They went east, didn't they? Yeah, they went Mozambique. east into Mozambique. So they mm -hmm. denned in Mozambique. And we didn't expect it because the pre... So it's quite a it's quite a process <clears throat> in terms of assessing if an area is sufficient for an, the introduction of wild dogs, and it was a long there was a long debate with regards to the, the introduction of wild dogs into northern Kruger because Kruger is an established population of wild dogs, um, but there's been this north south gradient 
in terms of a higher density of wild dogs in the north and then a, in the south and then a lower density in the north. And there was a number of factors that, that we looked into in terms of reintroduction into the north or recolonization. So there was an essentially, there was supposed to be an assisted recolonization. So there was very little movement of wild dogs from surrounding conservation areas, in fact almost none, from Zimbabwe, um, Mozambique into the northern parts of Kruger which really was driven by an increased lion density. And then the wild dogs that were introduced into Shingwechi shifted east into the Mpopo National Park because of that lion density around Shingwechi, which was slightly unsuspected. And they didn't do as well as we had hoped because of the higher poaching threat. Snaring. Yeah, snaring threat in, in Mozambique. Mm. Um, in terms of the long-term success, it was successful, and we based that long-term success on the fact that they bred. So you introduce a pack which has got unrelated males and females, you have to artificially bond them to form the pack the boma. So the short-term success is that males and females bond, and they mate and breed. And then the long-term success is those pups then at least survive up to a year old, which they did, but we lost track of them after about a year because their collars stopped working. It's a whole other topic on itself. Yeah, yeah, I was about yeah. to say. Well, but a year is a, that's a good innings for a collar. Mm. Just oh. as good as like Quinton the Cock scoring 10 runs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's a good innings for, for a collar and it was long enough to know that they had established a home range which overlapped Kruger and Limpopo National Park. So it was successful, but not as successful as we had wanted. But since then, and we can't say specifically that it's as a result of introducing wild dogs, but for the first time in 2019, we had dogs moving into Northern Kruger from, oh. from Zim. I remember we saw those dogs. Yeah, and they established up at Punda Maria Pafuri. So yes. since 2009, when I started the wild dog project, we, didn't, we hadn't had a resident pack of wild dogs in sure. Pafuri. There was dispersals coming through, and there had been dogs moving from like the Mapani area up north, but never a resident pack, and they denned up at Punda Maria in 2019. So did we assist in the recolonization? We don't know. And then subsequently to that, a colleague of mine and a friend of yours, Manus, had started a lion project because the lion numbers, unfortunately, are decreasing in northern Kruger. Well, I mean, across the whole northern sort of greater Kruger National Park. So Limpopo National Park in northern Kruger because of targeted lion poaching. And that's going to be interesting to see how that affects or benefits the wild dog population in the next couple of years because they are targeting lions and that decrease in lion population is probably and already has resulted in an increase in the wild dog population. Oh really? Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. But Granty, is that not also attributed to the fact that we had drought for four years? Because there's always an increase in dogs and, in drought. And they closed a lot of water holes up north. Yeah, they? so they did. That that was that was and well, the and that was for the Rhone as well. And yeah, and Rhone and Sable. Rhone ecology. I mean, <clears throat> it is one of the theories that we had over the ten years in terms of the drivers of population decline of wild dogs. <clears throat> so 1995, just from the photographic census, there were 430 odd wild dogs in, in Kruger National Park, 250 of which were north of the Olifants River. Wow. In 2009, Jeez. there were 135 wild dogs of less than 20 north of the Olifants River. 
That's crazy. So right. Even percentage-wise, it's much lower. Yeah, much lower. And, Lions and the density, so yeah, there was a shift actually in density of wild dogs now from the highest density being in the south. And even so even lion density, there's a density gradient from the south to the north. So you actually mm. expect there to be more wild dogs in the north than the south because their largest natural threat is lions. But that's not the case. And then even in the south, if you look at wild dog distributions in the south of the park, well, south and central, they skewed towards the west because of lion density. So the like the density heat maps are really interesting because wild dogs do not occupy that eastern border mm. which is the, like just east of the Labombos you get this West. so it's rhyolite on the basalt soil related soil related Geology. and it's it's prey density related so wildebeest zebra mm. in the in the eastern basalts which is uh, despite what what people see wild dogs chasing um zebra and wildebeest around but prey wise they've got a, a very Narrow. Consistent and narrow prey selection. You know, like we call it the the most abundant medium-sized ungulate, which in Kruger is impala, and then in KZN it's it's nyala. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so they don't prey on wildebeest and zebra, but they're avoiding that eastern boundary because of the density of lions. Um, and then in northern Kruger, we've got a lower density of lions, and then like as Ben mentioned, <clears throat> because they had those artificial water holes. Between 1995 and 2000, it increased the distribution of, there was a shift in, in water dependent species, which is zebra and wildebeest and buffalo actually more so, <clears throat> into the north. So lions then shifted into the north in relation to mm. the density of, of wildebeest, zebra and buffalo, which then decreased the, the wild dog densities. That's the thing. The, the data didn't show it, unfortunately, but it was also data deficient, you know. <clears throat> and that's something that's important for, for the average person to understand, is you can only understand as much as the data or information that you've got, you know. So mm -hmm. recording data and recording information and monitoring is really important to detect change after, over time. So often people will say, you know, Mark, as a, from an ecology point of view, and from like Tulela's point of view, just recording, like we went for a quick drive last night, just taking photographs of change from before you implement a project or research project or whatever to afterwards is really important to, de to detect change. That monitoring is important and it wasn't there in the early 90s in Northern Kruger. <clears throat> so we actually don't know what really caused the, de the decline. And then there was that shift. In 2010 we investigated of wild dogs outside the western boundary because of increased game farms increased prey availability mm. without mm. lions and there were definitely wild dogs moving from with inside Kruger to outside and then coming into conflict which is still happening. Contrary, yeah, contrary to what a lot of people think my job is about 80% of it is, is human wildlife conflict with, with private ranches outside the, the formal protected boundaries of Kruger. Dogs moving onto private farms and and us having to mitigate that threat. Okay, cool. Interesting, man. Very I mean, yeah, wild dogs I can talk about for, for hours. Oh, can we also have a chance? Yeah, yeah. Ben's, Ben's, Ben's getting upset. Came all the way, yeah. Can I also <laughs> say something? <laughs> and now you, okay, you next, buddy. Last question, and, and I think Ben's right. I, I'm totally on his side. It's an ongoing discussion about wild dog, painted dog. 
Painted Wolf, whatever name, opinion on this. This is from Jennifer, a huge fan. Shout out to Jennifer. Thanks so much um, for sending in your questions. Send a question for Grant and for Ben. This is one of your ex-girlfriends or something. Um, we've discussed this on the podcast. I'm giving you 30 seconds. What should I call them? Yeah, so we have discussed it. And from a, from a South African point of view, because of the diversity of languages, we've got 11 official languages in South Africa. Wild dog, painted dog is the English version, version or variety of it. Shangan, there's, there's a little bit of debate, but Shlowa as opposed to the guide Madach. But really, it, it comes down to the fact that it's a personal preference. And for me, growing up in South Africa, wild dog, African wild dog is, is what I refer to, to them as. Hey, but wasn't it a whole thing about um, trying to get a positive name about painted wolf instead of wild dog? Because wild dog had so a negative connotation. Yeah, something and it came into the debate is in, because of the language. In Afrikaans, a farmer that's going to shoot a villaunt or a gefaarte hond or whatever you want to call it. Doesn't really matter. It. Yeah. So it's not really going to increase the... But that was the theory behind it, wasn't it? Was it was a theory. And it also boiled down to, in East Africa, where they tried it, where the, the perception of wild dogs was, is different to in South Africa, international tourists just preferred the name. Paint the dog. But as, I mean, the, in terms of the question, my personal preference, because I grew up in South Africa, is, is African wild dog. Cool. It's hard, it's hard, you know. Refer back to episode right, three. Right, let's talk <laughs> wild dogs. I'm, t- I'm tired of wild dogs. Let's talk leopards. We have the uh, leopard whisperer here with us. No, man. Early this morning. Don't start with that not talking about you. How do you think he's talking about you? Come on, Dix. No, it's not arrogant, dude. No, it's not at all. You didn't even say your name. I know where this is going. <laughs> Finalist in the worse. Wildlife Photographer of the Year, Natural History Museum. Photographic guide extraordinaire. I'm actually, I've been trying to get you on here for... A while, since episode one, I think. Pre, Pre-COVID, buddy. Yeah, Seems been like a while. a decade. I know. Does. I feel very privileged to have you here. Let's talk <laughs> leopards, buddy. Let's talk anything. Um, uh, my question is, and it came through from somebody else as well. Sorry, I just want to check quickly. Um, from Wildlife Sam, where did your love for leopards come from? And I mean, I think I have the same question, not... You know, as Wildlife Sam, and like, did it just happen for you? You are the Leopard Whisperer. It says that on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Must, be, Must true. be true. Must be true. That's on the internet. Um, so. This is just upset that it was his wife that wrote this bio. I know, but uh, she's. It's quite an impressive bio. <laughs> it um, is. I, thank you. Um, so no, the, the love for leopards. Um, started as a kid. I. I um, Funny enough, it's a, it's, I, my grandparents got me involved in wildlife more so than anything else. But um, I read a book, Leopards of the Londolosi by Lex Hess. I don't know if you guys have ever... Let's get some more coffee there, guy. You're the man, bro. <laughs> have you ever read that book? Yes, of course. Yeah, so... I grew up on, man. Yeah, exactly. so that book I remember as a, as a little tiny kid paging through that and just being fascinated by the pictures and the story of of this game reserve and these leopards that were relaxed and that kind of sparked an interest and then i don't know about you guys but going to the kruger early in life leopards were not a thing that was seen like they are now or maybe just social media has opened this whole world to leopard viewing in the kruger park that 
when you were a kid, you felt like that animal was very difficult mm. to find. And mm. so not only was there this allure from this book, but there was also this process of um, going to the Kruger, not having much success in finding them. And, and the more you didn't see them, the more you wanted to. And so that's where it kind of started. And then, you know, being a guide in the Sabi Sands, it's hard not to start spending more and more time with them. And the more time I spent with them, the more fascinated I got. That's basically it. No, I love it. I mean, and honestly, these days, you know, if there is a question, like last night I talked to you about the lions and what's your opinion on this and the interaction. I mean, you literally, because, I don't know, maybe because of wild earth and the amount of time you spend with these animals, like, you know, you probably become a guy who who knows more about those leopards in that specific sector than a lot of people. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, th I think, you know, obviously the wild earth has given an opportunity that you don't have as a guide. Like, mm. when you've got guests... The bush is a big place there's a lot to explore it's not just about one specific animal you know there's so much to see but wild earth gives you an opportunity to spend an abnormal amount of time with the species I and mean, we spend sometimes up to seven hours with a leopard a day which Amazing. most people don't ever spend so you know from a behavior point of view from an understanding of the animal yeah 100 percent. we got to see a lot more and learn a lot more about these animals and we learned a lot particularly when we were doing a night stuff um, so a lot of people, obviously, leopard is, is seen as this nocturnal creature that moves around. But from what we did at night, which was nocturnal drones and, and thermal and infrared, leopards sleep a lot more than people realize during the night. They're far more crepuscular than they are nocturnal. Oh, wow. So sunset, sunrise, there's a peak activity that happens just before, just after. But that middle period of the night, they're often sleeping. So we found that we would head out at sort of 2.30 in the morning. Most of the leopards we found were sleeping until about four and then they would start getting up and moving oh. yeah so it's, it was interesting so we're lucky in that regard that we got to spend as much time as we did with them i mean it's crazy that's amounts cool. of time that's very cool. so sorry to interject but that's the kind of thing that also should be recorded yeah. from, you know to bridge the gap between tourism guiding and conservation mm -hmm. yeah, that sort of information <clears throat> should be recorded and i wonder if it is through like panthera's so Sightings log. Yes, unfortunately, that panthera doesn't have that in-depth ability to log that, that kind of behavior. Yeah. Camera traps would potentially do. But the do camera that. trap survey was an interesting one as well because they, the camera trap survey was done to try and determine density based off. They were trying to match tourism data with camera okay. trap data, so it wasn't anything to do with time of the day. Mm. But the spin-off should have been that they should have monitored oh. that. But I mean, and, and something that that's often seen as negative collars will answer that sort of question mm. with the activity monitor you know so you can see that but then do you not think that in a place like the sabi sands there's so much tourism and so many if it's recorded not at two o'clock in the morning no that's also true yeah so it's very it's very if specific it's if it's yeah. recorded you're gonna have a data gap there you know. yeah you don't need a collar if you've got the leopard whisperer you just told us <laughs> <laughs> but he needs they need to record that information it's, it's really interesting you know yeah. so yeah, there's a gap between what tourism and guarding can offer for conservation and you need to we need to bridge that gap well i mean somehow. we also uh, we've had this discussion many times yeah. is mm -hmm. that guides don't contribute to, to to conservation as much as they should. they should i mean i think it's one of the biggest bugbears that i have is that you know we, we spend a lot of time out in the bush but yet how many guides have any contact with a conservation person they they don't they go in they take guests they preach conservation but do they actually bring understand that data back to anybody or understand that what they're seeing has a greater impact if told to other people? Probably yeah. not. Mike, but you bridge that gap, eh? 
it's it's a difficult bridge to get uh, gap to bridge <laughs> early morning still but it's it's difficult because i mean you you're trying to get guides um to to capture the information that they've got they've, they've got a lot of knowledge in their head um but also trying to make sense of it when you have those discussions and the irony of it all is we tried sort of trying to record the stuff on PDAs and then smartphones and, and log sightings and stuff. But where it really came down to it all was just chatting, like having a beer on the mm. corner, um, which we used to do a lot of, was the opportunity for people like Grant and myself who are working in, in the, the conservation ecological side of things to chat to a guy like you. Yeah. And uh, like, we, I mean, that's where we all met is sitting around having a, a, a chat. And that's where this kind of, discussion is so important is that you bring all this information together and and you start to to put, put the, the pieces together and figure out what's what's actually going on and a skill set that oh. many don't realize in conservation is important yeah so a lot of people want to go into conservation because they love animals you don't work with animals no you work with people no or any any career you yeah. it boils down to that you work with people even as even veterinary pet. i was about <laughs> to say yeah, yeah. <laughs> No, wants to specifically help animals. You don't work with animals. You mm. work with animals, but... It's a big problem in the field there. It is. People's oh. skills are an important aspect and something that's not taught... It's not a skill that you can learn at school or varsity or whatever. Mm. And it often separates people that are successful in a career in conservation versus people that aren't. Sure. And it's something that probably needs to be spoken about more frequently, especially I get asked all the time, and I'm sure everyone has, like... <clears throat> what got you into conservation or how like how do I get into conservation and and speaking to people in conservation will tell you that it's about having people skills yeah. you know? like networking, networking and being being, being out there, out there. Oh, I represent him. Tristan what? here we go mm -hmm. uh, straight answers most leopards you've seen in a game drive uh, in the game drive 12 Oh, really? What? <laughs> yeah. Seriously? Cubs. Oof, I haven't seen yeah. 12 leopards this year. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, it's plenty. Uh, favorite, favorite leopard? Uh, a male called Tumba, but very close to Osana, which is quite a famous leopard. Okay, w awesome. Why? You have a big fan club. We saw that from the questions sent in. Wildlife Sam again. Um, what is still on your wish list, bucket list when it comes to animals and destinations? Oh. The wild dog tracking experience. <laughs> oh, I mean, <laughs> wild dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Jeez. Wild dog tracking experience. Have you been on one yet? <laughs> I went on one. We just couldn't find the wild dog. I was about oh, to say that's it. exactly it, man. Yeah, that's <laughs> you asked me your money back. Time, <laughs> so, Holly, didn't you hear what we just said? It's about spending time and networking. It's an experience. It's, 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 an experience. it's not a find. It's a wild dog tracking experience. What a wild dog. Finding experience. <laughs> um, Bucket list, buddy. Oh, no, it's too long. But um, I think I, I have this thing that I want to try and see if I can find all the subspecies of leopard, which is near impossible. Ah, cool. So there's nine subspecies in I'm total. This. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to do a thing where I would try and do it in a year, but it's literally to try and find Arabian leopards, in, uh, North China leopards are going to be impossible mm. um so that's snow leopards would be a big one that i would like to go and do mm. uh, and jaguars in, in south america is so anything and clouded leopard in borneo those, those would be all big bucket lists have you seen take any of with, the subspecies take me with. Hey? have you seen any india yeah india. from J drown 38 whose cubs will be more glorious tamba or hosanna oh. Yes. That's, that, that's heavy weighted um I, I suppose doesn't the female play a role in that too <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, it depends on who it is, you know. Um, I don't know. I think both will be good. They're both, both good-looking cats. Tumba. I don't know Tumba. He's now in the Western. He's one of Tundi's cubs. Okay. Beautiful, beautiful male leopard. He's not as pretty as he used to be because now he's lost half his ear. But um, From? They don't really know. They think fight with another male uh -huh. or hyena. But um, he's a, a beautiful cat. Got these very unusual eyes. They're like a green-blue color. Very, very, very pretty. Yeah. Wow. And still a very pink nose, even though he's now approaching five. Is that why your glasses have got you a You see, that's so color. interesting again. Like when I was, um, you know, coming through, I always used to say, okay, as soon as the nose turns pink, it's a, uh, black, it's a certain age from the pink. But like, I also observed that certain animals, their nose just stays yeah, pink. Yeah, so hey? to give you an idea, like Tandy's sister, Shadow, she was, when she disappeared, she was 11 and her nose was pink. Wow. Pink, really? pink, pink, pink. There was not a single black spot on it. That, that's what um, Panthera did a, a sort of whole photographic yeah, um, questionnaire and hunters and, and yeah they ask guides hunters professionals tourists. what what are the characteristics that you look at for to, to age a leopard because they were trying to see if you could work it out from appearance and the one thing for males was dewlap so the size of yeah, the dewlap and ear condition and ear and, and nose condition mm -hmm. except that the like problem with scratch. ear condition is also depending on, on your tick load yeah, yeah exactly. tick load and and the vegetation as well yeah. like so it's interesting to see that that perception of of color of uh, nose. Yeah, that was my perception. But with lions, it's, it's far more accurate. Very, very it's a lot more accurate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Really? Eh? Yeah. Mm. So lions definitely start to darken a lot more than, than leopards. But leopards, it's really not an age indicator at all. It's completely... Well, they call him the leopard whisperer. That's <laughs> good to know. <laughs> From Alice underscore Wilter, biggest fright you've ever received on safari? Yes, it might have been the one on camera. Yeah, falling out the car. That was a bit of a fright. <laughs> that was my favorite. You know the best part about that you story. You and Taylor do keep me entertained. I, I mean, uh, yeah, Taylor and I have had some some oopsie moments a, a few times. But you know the funniest part about that whole thing is actually following your bloody species is wild dogs it smashed into this log fallout. But when I fell on my back, so I was you know I looked really bad when I fell out. But the best part was the cameraman. So you don't see what happens with the cameraman, but he, when he's holding this kind of camera, he's got his arms wrapped around it kind of because he's using zoom and things like that. But this oak ended up with his head like wedged underneath the camera and his two legs sticking up. So all I saw was legs in the air, but I was in hysterics because I thought it was the funniest thing in the world with this guy kind of upside down in the back of his car. But yeah, it was not my finest moment at all. That was a bit of a fright. Um, <laughs> it's out there on YouTube if you guys want yeah. to look for it. Just, uh, Tristan Dix falls out of Land Rover. Everywhere. Do you know, it's, it's, it's everybody's favorite thing to do. Yeah? I go anywhere and somebody's like, oh, have you seen this like, fall out of a car? Here's the video. <laughs> I think, actually, I've, seen I think I've seen that video more than <laughs> no, anybody else, actually. I've never seen it. Yeah. Really? Oh, you're yeah. in for a treat. But you need to watch Taylor's video first before watching that because yeah. they connected. So yeah, Taylor fell in the mud and then yes. I was uh, making fun of her and then fell out the car. <laughs> and then my China Steve when he gets out and uh, he's tracking the lions. And the <laughs> not once, not twice, but three times. <laughs> so <laughs> shout out to Steve Falkenbridge. And when he almost drove <laughs> over the leopard as well. <laughs> <laughs> it happens to the best of us. Uh, uh, all the time. Yeah, it does. I drove past lions the other day. Wild Earth, everything's recorded. It's amazing exactly. though. How cool... How cool was uh, Wild Earth and, you know, uh, the lockdown and that? How insane, eh? Yeah, good. I mean, it's, I think the I thing... I watched you live, driving down the road with my girls, like 4.30 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. Also, nine months ago, in lockdown, uh, following the leopard and then the, it jumped for those ground hornbills. How crazy was that, that sighting? That was very cool. That was very, but going very back, cool. yeah. 
Um, I mean, I think you know, Wild Earth is is an is such an interesting concept, and obviously, it's been going for a lot longer than people realize. Mm. So it's been going for I think now it's almost twelve years. Um, but it what's been really nice because of lockdown is that it's grown a huge South African audience. So there's a lot of South Africans that have really now started to cotton onto the fact yeah. that there's this, you know, this this wildlife channel and being on DSTV and whatever. Um, and it's opened up a world for people who couldn't get out and are stuck in a, an apartment or a house um, but can feel like they're somewhat connected to the bush and whether you watch it because you have a favorite guide or you have a, a favorite animal is irrelevant i think it's an, a nice escape for people just to hear the sounds of the bush and and to feel like they're not just stuck in a you know in a kind of apartment somewhere so it's got a it's an amazing tool i think to to connect people to nature that possibly would never be able to as well that's the other side of it is i mean if somebody can't travel for whatever reason can't get to these lodges you know the areas that we occupy are are pretty exclusive to a very small percentage of the world but that they can have an access to it and an ability to to interact with guides that i mean for the most part are fairly knowledgeable and we try a little bit <laughs> sometimes we get it wrong um but you know it's um it's it's i think it's quite nice that people do, and they don't have to pay for it you know what i mean so yeah. it's opening a whole area and knowledge base to people that possibly couldn't afford it i or, love it man yeah. i know loads of people who are watching it it's crazy you know, it's, it's in the last 12 months but loads and loads i really love it he yeah. does us with last week you know he says it's obviously now on dstv channel or whatever 183 yeah. or it's very cool yeah. last question ranger nick Nell, my main man when are you coming <laughs> to mala mala Oh, I, when we get an invite, uh, yeah, Nick it now. Is there, and also Brett, I'm like, well, whenever you want to. Yeah, well, exactly. When when uh, when Nick is decides. Is that Brett, for to visit Mala Mala? <laughs> I, I don't know. That's <laughs> you're asking guy. the wrong guy. I've never been there. <laughs> yeah, Copying an invite have, there is, I have, is tricky. Yes, I'm going to claim that one. <laughs> I actually, I have been to Mala Mala. Not, not legally. No, no. We're not allowed inside. I no, legally. At the room gate and wave. <laughs> so we at uh, in 2014, um, when Skakuza Airport was being built, and I was working at Lion Sands, we were allowed to go fetch our guests from the airport, mm. but we weren't allowed to park anywhere where there was shade. We had to be in the sun. <laughs> so you know we couldn't do that, and we weren't allowed to use the bathrooms either. Yeah, guests had to get on, and you had to drive them off Mala Mala first. Um, so. <laughs> you know, I've, I have been on Mala Mala, but it was a very brief visit. Yeah, I didn't see any leopards. <laughs> I did actually. I, it was the worst thing in the world. Was you'd get from Lion Sands and it's like an hour drive to Mala Mala Airstrip, and yeah. you would see everything on Mala Mala. Get to Lion Sands and then for three nights see nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it was awkward. Eh? But that was exactly up. it. You just used to tell the guest, "Don't worry, you still have to go back for your air transport, <laughs> so it will be fine. We'll get all the animals on the way back." <laughs> Ranger Nick Null, we're waiting for our bed nights, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Have you seen Nick Null in the gym? He's uh, oh, hammers the gym. The church. Yeah, the church. <laughs> House of pain. Shout out to Nick Null, buddy. Just because you can arm wrestle Beverly and do more proper burpees than him. Not fake Cullum Bruce Lawson burpees. Oh, oh. Burpees. shots are being fired. Uh, at the church. <laughs> okay, the Leopard Whisperer. It is a privilege to have you here. Thank you. We'll hear more from you. Dr. Ben Miller at Ben 10. Join the conversation, buddy. You keep having a ciggy in the corner <laughs> and uh, pretending to look after your dog from wild animals. <laughs> didn't you see him pointing at his shirt, bro? He's so, ready when you are. <laughs> look at that. Apart from taking photos on with your of your partner. The celebrity. Checking, you know, with his finger 
his whole arm up an elephant's bum. Um, what else do you do, buddy? Yes, I don't know if I'm at liberty to say. Uh, <laughs> Grant's just got a naughty, naughty grin there. <laughs> No, yes, work takes up a lot of our time. Last eh? night more than anyone else. Tell me, main question. Okay, Ben and Joel, who's also appeared on this podcast, are absolute legends. You can see them at Ben 10. Um, lockdown in Iraq. I mean, this uh, guy was cruising around the Klaseri Private Nature Reserve for four months. I was stuck inside my house with two children under the age of three. No cigarettes, no alcohol. <laughs> And you were in Iraq. No, it was interesting, eh? And uh, from a wildlife point of view, yes, I saw like, I think, five species of birds in seven months, eh? The <laughs> desert is dry, eh, let me tell you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> no, but I actually saw, you know what I did saw? I sent you a picture still. I saw uh, yeah, you a, did. a, a fox thing. A, I think it's a Rupal's fox. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Scrawny wow. things, eh? Oh. Basically looks like a sick art ball. Yeah. You also like saw a, the link to wild dogs, Mange. didn't you? There was a domestic dog with fused toes. Oh, uh, yeah. That's oh, yeah. I saw two of those actually up there. A Labrador, huh? A la one was a Labrador and one was a Melanoir. What do you mean? They, uh, so wild dogs, I don't know if you've seen, but they're... Oh, the yeah, let me tell, I'll tell this one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he just wants to interrupt all the time. Eh? Oh, so <laughs> They've got a fused pad on their front on their front feet, not on the hind feet, eh? it's just the uh, front no, feet. Both. Yeah, it's really? But their, their pads are fused, the two middle pads are, so they actually have like a, a web, and you don't see that in domestic dogs, but I've picked it up in two or three dogs now, funny enough, yeah. So what were you doing in Iraq, and how did you end up there in, uh, you know, why are you back here? Yeah, so, you know, as, as wildlife vets, we, we generally have quite a quiet off-season, when I say off-season, it's usually in the summer months, you know, um, outside of the capture season, and I went up there just to relieve another vet. Uh, for a quick three weeks stint in summer, and then, <laughs> then I got caught in lockdown, and ended up staying seven months. But it was it was really great. I mean, it was very comfortable. There was a lot of work to do. We had a, so I basically worked for um, an American company. They had uh, yes, we had about 140 dogs there. On con in country, we had about 240. There was another vet actually up there, and mainly dogs just uh, doing detection dogs for the the oil industry, eh? working uh. gates. Oh, obviously Iraq is not the safest place, so security cells there. Wow. <laughs> Fascinating, man. Yeah. Question from Lala Lula. What's the most challenging animal to treat? Wild dog. I'm checking. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Shout out, Lala Lula. Yes, that's a very difficult question. I think... Probably white rhino, eh? Really? Yeah, they just... Just their size makes it, and 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 and, really? and quite often surgically and the pachyderms things that do. So like, yeah, I don't, it's a, it's a, I wouldn't really say a species, but if you mm -hmm. had to say a species, I'd say more like a disease or something. But a species definitely white rhino. They, but on also you know, white rhino are notoriously difficult under anaesthetic. Right? Well, yeah, to begin with, and and their size, you know, their positioning is always you've got to position them correctly, and quite often if you've got a wound, yeah, no rhino difficult to work with, eh? Yeah. And I mean, is it really that you spend most of your time on rhino now as a generalization? Um, funny enough, yeah, most of our work uh, this year at, at least has been rhino. Yeah. Dehornings mm. mostly. Mostly, yeah. yeah. No, we, rhino have kept us very busy the last two years. Eh? And this year, I mean, we, you know, 
I'm from Liberty to say, but we've got there a lot of rhino work coming up this year. It's it's a large part of our work is rhino work. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any opinion on anything like that? You want to go there? You don't want to go there? Um. I mean, how do we stop this whole story of yeah. rhino poaching? Yes, it's difficult, eh? And I think your yeah, Mike will have very good insight into this because he's 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 got a lot of insight into what happens what happens in the communities. Mm. So we just obviously work at the coal face, you know, just on the animals themselves and dehorning does work i mean it has been it, it's there's no published research on it um but it definitely it's it's halted poaching in this area yeah um and we've probably i mean out of the rhino population in in the low felt excluding kruger probably 50 40 40 percent of the animals are dehorned and where they dehorned they've been it stopped you know so um uh but you're going up the tiers, I mean, it's... Higher than that, it's then? Higher than 40, 50%? No, I think because Sobi Sands and Timavati... You're talking Great Kruger though, but APNR yeah, and Kruger. And, uh, and probably uh, the private, private prison. Reserve? Yeah, because they're all dehorned there. Eh? Yeah, but then it's There's higher than 50% of so the animals are dehorned. In the, in the national herd, I'd say in, in Kruger, Greater Kruger is probably only 50%. 50%. Yeah. Mm, but remember, but is it Timavati and Sobi Sands have a lot of... Rhino. It is definitely sustainable. I mean, there's a cost to it, so yeah, that's what, that's what your I mean, cost per rhino is probably about 7,000 rand per animal, and you need to do it every 18 months. So there is a cost associated to it. But it's just, it's uh, it's one of the tools in the toolbox that we're mm. using currently, just until, until I don't know, because guys kind of hope this all blows over in like five years. It's also years another opportunity for, for tourism and conservation, the gap to be bridged. Oh, definitely. Tourism being involved yeah. with those conservation projects, you know, which is something that yeah. you guys do. I mean, most of our, our, our rhino work, if it's not a treatment, if it's like a management, like a notching or a dehorning, um, there's, 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 there's often be. always guests. Eh? Yeah, so, so it's great. Eh? And people, yes, I've seen people in tears. Eh? Mm. Like oh, it's, it's a great it's experience. It's an emotional experience for, for, for anyone, you know, yeah. whether you know wildlife or you work in the industry or mm. not. It's... That's well, anytime you whip out a chainsaw and start revving that thing, <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty, um, no, pretty... that's the only thing. It's it's uh, looks sometimes more awesome, but quite it works, gruesome yeah. for. It does work. But dehorning or not, I mean, every time I've been on, I know, you know, when there's a runner dance, emotional man, mm. like really, no, it is. Eh? Dehorning it or not, yeah, it's super emotional. Yeah. But also, but I think like, any animal, like yeah, anytime you go and do these these anything where you get close to these animals, you yeah. you start to have a better appreciation for the animal you start to understand that there's a lot going on i mean like even collaring a dog or mm. a snare wound or whatever you you realize how much is you know taking place and also it gives you an, an idea of what the animal actually is in size and in, in you see things that you don't notice like the fused toes on a, on a wild dog tick loads you know I, I was shocked once when i saw a buffalo down how many parasites those things carry on them it's unbelievable their skin just crawls with stuff so you know i think anytime you can get close to wildlife is always a you're going to have far more of appreciation for that animal than just seeing it from a distance you know? and that it's makes a difference to a, like a an understanding of of the bigger conservation picture yeah. if the guest has that opportunity or goes to a place that embraces that rather than hides it yeah like the well we've been i mean we've chatted about this heavily yeah. it's not just not just the conservation aspect, but also from a, a local community aspect of how tourism 
is missing the mark heavily that because we, everything is focused on in reserve yep. and and it's not even the management of the reserve it's like come in see the animals and get out you know and, yep. and tick mm. a few boxes and take a photo but there's such a larger scale that's got, taking place for that reserve and and um, ecological system to survive that you know guests should be exposed to a lot more of what's going on so seeing what the, the impacts are of a reserve to a community that surrounds it to animals that need to be protected because of that reserve there's there's a lot that takes place you know but even from a veterinary point of view in terms of like asking ben the question you know for for people to understand when a rhino is down just under general anesthetic is a it's an intense process mm. to, to go through you know when you're collaring a wild dog any anything where you're putting an animal or species or whatever under anesthetic is a is a it's a process to go through and something that's hectic as a vet a vet yeah. you know so mm. you know it's something that's important for people to understand how much goes into conservation each step of the way is, is but intense. that's exactly it but that, that's why i'm saying that it should be a lot more prominent within a within a tourism sector yeah is people understanding that it's not just put a fence around a piece of land and the animals just exist you know it's there's a lot that goes into it there's there's many facets that make up a successful game reserve um and still ever evolving you know we yeah. still don't understand a lot of what goes into reserves there's a still a, a huge amount that we're learning every day so and the cost of conservation yeah oh, but i mean it's ridiculous the the, the and I mean, we this was a question we were talking about last night is what is is the cost of one animal beneficial to others, you know what I mean? So like with rhinos, for example, we, we're talking 7,000 rand a rhino just to take off a horn, but that's not the sum total of a value of a rhino these days. I mean, keeping that thing safe mm. is worth millions nowadays. And then the, the knock-on effect that you're keeping other animals safe because you're protecting, mm. you've got patrols and you've got helicopters. Exactly. So got... is protecting one animal more viable What's than protecting... What's the call there, Mike? I mean, that was the question we did discuss last night. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one because you, you kind of ask the question, do you focus on a species that, and, and you can call it a blanket species or a keystone species that... Uh, if you look after that, it's going to protect the whole area and, and look after it in terms of maintaining it. And Because the, a lot of those keystone species are the ones that people want to see. The, they come to South Africa or Africa to go and see the Big Five and they want to see wild dogs because they're um, endangered. So people put a lot of focus on that. But a lot of the, the work that we're doing is ecological uh, maintenance and making sure that we, we ensure that these whole ecological systems are intact. Because it doesn't help having a really beautiful Klaseri game reserve when the water running from the mountain of, uh, of Blader there comes out and is dirty and isn't looked after before it gets into the Klaseri game reserve. Like then your main source of water for six months of the year is going to be uh, tainted. So it's, it's that whole discussion that we were having yesterday about where do you put your efforts? And the, I guess the, the real answer is you've got to put your efforts in both. But you've got to try and marry them as well, that, that you don't spend too much time focusing on one thing and forget about the others. Um, and don't, and, and you've got to educate people around the bigger picture. And that's, that's the hardest part, is the education part of what's going on outside of a reserve. You want to give guests the most incredible experience, you've only got a short amount of time. Or you, you don't have the full picture, you don't know what's going on because you're in your, your own little area and conservation is such a big that you gotta gotta take time to I don't know listen to podcasts listen read some interesting stories make your own mind up about what 
what you think is the right options? Personally, I mean, I'm a huge fan in the last few years of this whole, we need to conserve areas and not species. Yeah. Because by conserving areas, we're conserving that biodiversity. And, you know, with hunting and this and that and everything, I've just it's become more and more important to me to conserve areas rather than species. And that's my own personal opinion. I mean, you brought it up last night. It's like a big... But I mean, what, even the, what about the fact that reducing carbon is conservation? 100%. So, like, the, there's a, a big factor to it all that protecting a species is a 20, 30, 40 year sort of focus. But do we want to look longer term? Like, if we keep these natural areas, it's going to help us in terms of sequestering carbon, keeping soil organic carbon. Um, there, there's a whole other side to it. In, and, and that's purely because we, we're letting grass grow and trees grow unhindered. So, and like, this is a, it's a pretty out there statement to make, but species, You're an out there guy, species, <laughs> I know, yeah. species extinction is a natural process. That's true. Yeah, that is true. Species go extinct naturally mm -hmm. all the time. In fact, we're in our sixth mass extinction. Okay. The issue is the rate of species yeah, extinction. We're accelerating. Yeah, we're accelerating it. So, mm -hmm. I don't think you can. Yeah. E even with wild dogs, we, I cannot say as a conservationist that the work that I'm doing on wild dogs is going to keep them on the planet for eternity because something might change in terms of what's affecting the planet globally because of human population growth, loss of habitat are still the biggest drivers of population decline. In and anything, that's but, in anything. Yeah. Including in ourselves. Habitat loss and human population growth including ourselves, is the biggest drivers of species or habitat destruction which then results in species. And we need to take a backward step and realize that if there's a bigger picture here mm -hmm. than, than species conservation. I mean, Mike, are you hopeful that we're going to have, uh, like, I mean, these reserves, if you think about it, I mean, you made a very valid point last night is, okay, so you protect the reserve, but then the water coming in is all toxic and the animals will die anyway. So... Is, I mean, are you hopeful that we'll get to a point where we can actually sustain these reserves? Or do you think that we're at a point now where water is so badly polluted on the outside that it's possible that we do lose these no, reserves? I'm very hopeful. And, and the reason why I can be sort of seeing it with the, the glass half full is because nature bounces back so quickly. So the restoration work that we, we've been seeing outside in an area that's slightly degraded or quite heavily degraded um, in some areas... You give nature a little bit of opportunity mm. and she just bounces back and the, the rivers get clean. And so, mm. so it takes that, but it takes that effort and that understanding. And it's not, the, the, the hard part is we are all custodians of the land. So, mm. so you might not realize it, but the choice that you make in terms of the meat that you buy mm. has a knock-on effect. Mm. So you want to go and buy meat from somewhere that's uh, from an abattoir? You've got to think about what goes into that. How many lands were tilled to plant maize or um, yeah. sorghum or whatever to feed those animals sitting in a, in a kraal compared to animals that are walking free on the felt, grass-fed yeah. and stuff. Those are, those are the, the things that I get really excited about is when you see the shift of people saying, okay, I'm going to start thinking about where does my food come from? Yeah. What, what is my impact? Um, and and you, do, you do see these... Uh, opportunities coming through. I think the other nice thing is in Africa we have massive amounts of wide open spaces and they're great organizations that are, are trying their best to keep them mm -hmm. wide open and if we can 
get that balance of people still benefiting because the reality is people still have to live and mm. and we're not going to slow the the population growth down so quickly that we can say oh let's, let's just not do anything yeah people have to live with it so if you use things sustainably if you harvest a little bit from here and there fine but don't overdo it so yeah i i am hopeful and i guess that's that's something that you have to you have to be if you you work in conservation because if you're negative yeah, well, it's a slippery slope. It's yeah. a very slippery slope, and you'll get bleak. <coughs> which is which is something that's difficult not to be. No, negative absolutely. In, in conservation, it's so difficult not to be negative, but you have to be. Yeah, positive. You have to positive. be positive. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, we're just looking for Roxy. She's on the hunt for hyenas. Uh, she's upstairs. She's upstairs. Mm. Last question. Ben Miller, you ever treated an art fox from the SA specialist? Thanks for sending in your questions. Yes, we've tried. I was actually called uh, by the University of Pretoria last year. Was it? No, no, it was two years ago to tr to catch art fox for a a, a, um, a research project they were busy with, and then we they also wanted to uh, put uh, implant transmitters intra abdominal. Um, we tried for like I think it was I was there for like a week. Eh? till like three in the morning sometimes and we saw them a few times but no i've never i've never had the, the yes you should have just taken guy with you, you yes we tried yeah, yeah i know <laughs> yes and we tried in a daycare but uh looked like an art park from the start no uh, Brett, they're extremely difficult animals to capture we had we tried free darting uh we had telemetry darts there uh, we try to catch them in nets like placing a net so closing all the holes and then placing like a net over the exit promise you they'll stay in there for like uh oh a couple of days no food no water they just they just hide it out eh? um and also uh, yes you, you won't believe how strong those things are we made those nets so solid they they just rip them out eh? they are unbelievably strong wow. no not eh? no because i'd imagine no, they, they would disappear underground yeah, you know and they were quite habituated there there was and there was a high density of them mate. we we really saw a lot um and so you could like almost drive probably 20 30 meters from them but as soon as you come like just if you just close that that uh, f uh fight or flight gap they was running all gone oh, oh. Oh, but no i've uh, i'd love to eh? they yes interesting mm. very interesting critters eh? it is, it is. Oh. anything else that comes to mind like species or Occasion that just sticks in your head. Oof, yes, I, what about when you darted a wild dog and it woke up and bit me? <laughs> oh, when I asked you to Let's hold it and you, and you and you let it go and you let it you let it you let it so <laughs> you mean you underdosed it? I asked Grant to scruff the thing and he literally scruffs it, but then pulls it onto his arm. Yeah, and then I get the blame for it. Tell us more. Yeah. No, it was, uh, we were darting to remove a, a snare, I think. Yeah. Yeah, but it was just, it was a loose snare, so there was nothing, there was nothing to treat on the patient. And I can't remember, I think it was a bit of a subcut dart. And the sun was setting, typical, where you're pushing it till the, till the end there. Typical wild dog dart. Um, <laughs> and uh, we eventually... Was wild dog with me? No. No, no, geez, that was, that was recently, we've done plenty before that. I'm sorry. But anyway, the animal didn't go down. Uh, yeah, she, she was. It was a female still, I think. Yeah, she was. Uh, she was. She didn't go down too nicely, and she was quite awake, and uh, basically had to manhandle her. But just to get the snare off, and Grant was doing the manhandling, and he did a piss poor effort, and she bit him. <laughs> uh, 
And always, as always, the vet gets the blame, you know. So, yes, exactly. Yeah. exactly. Okay, gentlemen, I want to thank you so much. Eh? I really, truly mean it. The rest of the stuff I wasn't that heartfelt, but this I really mean, man. Tristan, thank you very much. Ben, Mike. Thank you. Grant. It's been emotional. And Guy, thank you so much, guys. I truly appreciate it. Thanks awesome. for having us at Tulelo. Yeah. What a treat to sleep out on Lovely, the deck. Yeah. It's a beautiful day in the Classeri. Don't sleep in the hammock. Birds are falling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. fell out of the hammock. Twice. <laughs> Twice, man. <laughs> Twice. The first attempt, yeah, the, no, he slid right off. It's your fault. Just, well, yeah. Why is it my fault, man? Dude, it was like sleeping on one of those flipping trap doors. Yeah? No, but <laughs> you side-mounted the hammock and fell right off. No, I did not. We didn't find the hole and I fell off the top of it. I love it. My you can find bruise. today's guests online via their social media handles. Linked in this podcast description. Go ahead and give them a follow. The Leopard Whisperer at Ben 10. Activate Africa and KNP Wild Dogs. We welcome your questions and comments and encourage you to let us know what you think. Who do you want to meet around our campfire and what burning questions do you have for these bush legends? Find us on social media via the links in the description and tune in to watch our podcast recordings from around the campfire on our YouTube playlist. Have a beautiful day. And you, Boys, thanks. Thank you, Thank you very much. Driving home with Grant. Well, it's all of us, but we're, we're in trouble, all of us.